Good morning. It is Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Great to have you with us on this Tuesday. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more and find your plan at Delta Dental Covers Me. It is race week in New Hampshire as we get ready for the big events coming up this weekend, starting on uh, Friday night. But uh, joining us this morning is Kaz Gralla. Uh, Kaz, good morning. Great to have you with us. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me on. It's a big week. Yes, it is. No doubt about that. And uh, Kaz, a, a native of Boston, and we'll we'll talk about that in a minute, but Kaz competes a full-time in the NASCAR Xfinity Series in the number 26 Toyota GR Supra for Sam Hunt Racing and part-time in the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series in the number one Toyota Tundra for Tricon Garage. And Kaz, you're a very busy guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially, you know, over the last few years, I feel like I've, I've raced everything that there is to race. Um, but... Coincidentally, n- none of uh, none of my races over the past few years have happened to to be at New Hampshire. So it's actually been uh, about four years since 2019 that I I last raced at New Hampshire Motor Speedway, which is just over an hour away from where I grew up in Westboro, Massachusetts, and it's the closest track that I have to a home track. So that's uh, that's the one that that all my friends and family come to and. Um, that's my my first home track. I feel like I have several home tracks now because I live in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, full-time for the racing now. Um, but New Hampshire Motor Speedway is, is like going back home for me. So um, I'm, I'm glad to be able to have it on my schedule this year, and it's, um, it's been good to be full-time in the Xfinity Series this year for a change. As you mentioned, uh, you grew up in Westboro, Massachusetts, and uh, I know you came from a racing family, correct? That's right. Yeah, my dad actually used to race in sports cars, um, what's now called the IMSA series. So that's like the the 24 hours of Daytona um, races like that. So, um, you know, he what he used to do is very different than what I do now um, in stock cars. He's actually never raced on an oval before in his life. So, uh, we, we kind of took two separate paths, but when I was little and racing road courses, uh, especially, um, when I was in go-karts, I pretty much learned everything, uh, everything that I knew from my dad uh, about racing. He got me started and helped show me the ropes. And, um, now I'm, I'm at a point where, uh, he, he doesn't know exactly what it's like to race on an oval. I'd love for him to know someday. That would be really cool. But um, being in NASCAR now, I'm kind of kind of paving my own path here. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, did you ever come up uh, as as a spectator to uh, well, what, what you know, New Hampshire Motor Speedway? Oh yeah, many times. Yeah, um, many many times. I, I've been there in the grandstands a, a whole handful of times. Uh, and my first time ever being able to go in the infield of a NASCAR race was actually up at New Hampshire. I was a, a guest of David Reagan, who I had met through racing at, at the lower ranks before. Um, and he he invited me out to show me what it's like at, at the top level 
in the infield. So that was really, really cool. So that, that the track up at New Hampshire definitely has a, a special meaning to me. It's been a part of, of my life, my childhood all along. Uh, and, and I've raced there a handful of times before, uh, about three times, I think, in the ARCA series, two or three times in the truck series, and twice in the Xfinity series before. Um, but as I mentioned, it's, it's been a few years and, um, you know, I, I, I always love racing back at home and, and getting to hang out with the new England race fans. Cause I've always said that, you know, it, it, you, when you think of NASCAR, you think of Southern, you know, sure. Southeast yeah. race fans. That's probably where it's the most prevalent. And, up up in new England, we really love our stick and ball sports. Racing isn't nearly as, uh, as well known or well followed up up by us. However, I gotta say, I think the race fans in New England are the most passionate race fans that there are. We might not have the highest quantity, but right. we have the best ones, the most the most passionate. Every year they show up at, at New Hampshire Motor Speedway um, in the droves and uh, have have a great time there in the campgrounds and the grandstands and. Um, it, it's always a really fun time. So that, that should be a, a lot of fun this weekend. Well, as you well know, growing up in, in Westboro, Mass, that uh, no matter what the sport, uh, New England fans are, are very passionate about it, whether it be uh, auto racing, baseball, football, basketball, hockey. Uh, when they follow a sport, they are very, very passionate about it, as you know very well. No doubt about that. So tell us about you. And uh, I want to point out to people that uh, Kaz is still a very young man and has accomplished a lot uh, in in his career. As a matter of fact, uh, you you hold some records in NASCAR history. Uh, Youngest driver uh, to make the uh, NASCAR playoffs, the youngest NASCAR winner at Daytona, and the youngest uh, NASCAR pole winner at Daytona. Some pretty significant milestones that you've had. Yeah, yeah, that was uh that that one weekend at Daytona in particular was was a big one for me. Um I had just turned 18 years old. I'm 24 years old now. Um but I had just turned 18 and was racing in the truck series and qualified on the pole at Daytona and um ran up front in the top 5 pretty much the entire night and I think I was fifth on the last lap. A couple of the trucks ahead of me got together, um crashed off turn two, one of them flipped over, and I kind of drove right under it, cleared through the smoke, and there was nobody in front of me. Uh, I I was able to save it there and um, win that race. So that that was really cool. That was my first first time ever racing at Daytona on the on the big oval there. So uh, that was definitely a, an unexpected and, and fun night there. Uh, but hopefully, hopefully, I can go win that bronze lobster up in New Hampshire at some point, because that I feel like every driver always, you know, you've got your tracks you want to win at. And there's a few tracks that we have that have really cool trophies, really unique ones that everybody, you know, circles on their calendar to want to win, but you always want to win at your home track and and be able to do that in front of your, your hometown fans and and your friends and your family that, that come out, um, cause of course, when, when you race close to home, you always end up with a whole lot more people there that, you know, than, than on your average weekend. So, uh, New Hampshire has always been one I've really wanted to win at. I, I think I finished third and fourth there before in the past in ARCA. 
um, tent in the truck. So I've, I've done well there, but never have, have been able to find victory lane yet. So, um, that, that's, that's the next big one. I'd, I'd really like to check off the list. And of course the Xfinity race is coming up on uh, Saturday afternoon and, uh, Kaz will be a part of that in his number 26 Toyota GR Supra. But I, I guess the, the main goal for you would be to get a, a regular ride in the cup series. That is exactly the the goal, and and hopefully someday I'll I'll be able to find myself there. I've I've actually done a handful of cup races right. before. Yeah. I've done I've done seven of them, uh, I believe. And um, that that first one that I did actually was pretty unexpected, but probably uh, responsible for the the other six starts that that I got a chance to make over the next couple of years. It was back in 2020 in the in the heat of COVID and. Uh, I was racing part-time, just five races in the Xfinity Series at the time for Richard Childress Racing, uh, and Austin Dillon in the three-car tested positive for COVID going into a weekend. Um, it was the first weekend they ever raced on the Daytona Road Course. Uh, so I was their their first call to, to hop in the car and fill in for him, but I had never driven a cup car before, and, and during COVID, our our uh, event format was a race, no practice, right. no qualifying yeah. Yeah. race. You just hopped in. Um, so that's what I did. I, I hopped into the car, started dead last in the field, um, had never even flipped the ignition switch up on a cup car before wow. rolling off pit road there for the pace laps and um, ended up driving through the field and finishing seventh in that race. That's amazing. Um, so, that that was big for me. Um, I think that was better than they had even expected, and, and they were the ones that, that put me in the car. So that was that was a really really big one for me, um, and I, I think that helped uh, kind of jumpstart some some opportunities that that followed for me. Um, but hopefully someday I'll I'll be able to get to the Cup Series in a full time capacity. That is the goal, and in, in the the first step to doing that is, is running in the Xfinity Series full-time and hopefully over the next couple of years winning some races and proving to everybody that, that I'm, I'm here to compete for a championship and, and hopefully put my name in the hat for, for some cup rides that become available at, at some point over the next few years. Well, I, I'm sure that will be in your future. You, you've had a, a terrific career uh, thus far and as you mentioned, still just 24 years old and I think the future is bright for Kaz Grala, and we will look for you this weekend on Saturday afternoon at the Magic Mile in the number 26 Toyota GR Supra uh, for Sam Hunt Racing. And uh, Kaz, you've been a delight to have on. We really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. I it, appreciate it. It is our pleasure, and, and uh, best wishes over the weekend. Thank you. That's Kaz Grala, and he will be racing on the Saturday afternoon in the Xfinity Series, and then, of course, the Cup race on the Sunday afternoon at New Hampshire Motor Speedway in Loudoun, and tickets available for both events. We will take a quick break. Kale & Company continues right here on WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Welcome back, Kale and Company, live right here on WKXL. 
nhtalkradio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. And I know that uh, many of us were very saddened this morning when we uh, opened our editions of the Concord Monitor to uh, find out about the uh, death of a good friend, John Graffair. Uh, John, who was uh, 73, passed away on July 7th at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Uh, he died from complications from his three-year battle with cancer and a traumatic brain injury that he suffered during Concord's annual and race in May. Fittingly, the uh, race supports the Payson Cancer Center uh, at Concord Hospital. And I'll uh, read you a little bit of the uh, obituary, which uh, is in today's Concord Monitor. John was born in North Tonawanda, New York, on June 15, 1950. He was the third of four boys, all of whom were raised in Tonawanda. His parents, uh, deceased Gordon Graffair and Lois Smith Graffair. In the early 70s, John moved to Concord from uh, Tonawanda, New York. He started the Open Kitchen Restaurant on Main Street above Diversi's Market, serving up natural foods and folksy entertainment. Concord Creative Video Channel 12 broadcast live folk music from the Open Kitchen, and John often manned the camera, which planted the seeds of his long career in video. Upon the closing of the Open Kitchen, John went to work full-time for Channel 12. He helped the station develop into an important and quality community resource covering local news, culture, politics, and sports. In 1995, John started Act Company Video Production with an office at the Capitol Center for the Arts. Act Company has continued to serve the local community and beyond with a variety of video services, ranging from historical documentaries and political pieces to dance recitals and local theater productions. John's work has been broadcast on public television and the History Channel. He recently co-produced an acclaimed documentary on the life and career of 19th and early 20th century composer Amy Beach, who was born in Henniker. John was deeply committed to improving the quality of life for all in the Concord community. Most recently, he was the director of the Concord Historical Society and supervisor of the checklist in Ward 3. Shortly after moving to Concord in the 70s, John helped start the New Hampshire Folk Festival and direct the first-night Concord festivities on New Year's Eve. He has been a contributor for the Concord Monitor for a number of years, frequently writing My Turn pieces on timely subjects and reflections on life as a citizen, father, and artist, always a joy to read. John sought to teach others the value of honesty, integrity, humanity, and diplomacy. The only thing he didn't teach us was how to live without him. A memorial service is going to be held on Sunday, July 16th at 1 p.m., at the St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Hopkinton. Reception will follow at 3 p.m. at the Snowshoe Club in Concord. In lieu of flowers, contributions in John's memory may be directed to St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Hopkinton or the Concord Historical Society. So very sad news to many of us. Uh, John was a, a pillar of the community for many, many years, and uh, he will be 
uh, sorely missed. John Graffer passing away at the age of 73. Well, last night, the uh, Major League Baseball held its annual home run derby prior to the All-Star Game. It took place in Seattle, and four years after he set a single-round home run derby record, only to not win the title that year, former New Hampshire Fisher Cat, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. bestowed the same fate on someone else and added to his family's rich legacy in the process. The son of Hall of Famer Vladimir Guerrero, participating in the Derby at his family's urging, ousted hometown favorite Julio Rodriguez after a record-setting performance and outlasted Randy Rosarena in the finals to win the Derby on Monday night. 16 years after his father did the same. In uh, 2019, the then 20-year-old Guerrero, a star first baseman with the Blue Jays, put on a show in his Derby debut, hitting a record 40 home runs in the second round and 91 overall, but he fell in the finals to Pete Alonzo of the New York Mets. So congratulations to a former member of the New Hampshire Fisher Cats, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., the champion of the Home Run Derby. He won it last night in Seattle, was presented the winning trophy by three-time winner Ken Griffey Jr., a former member of the Seattle Mariners. So Vladdy capturing the crown last night. The All-Star Game will be tonight in Seattle, just one member of the Boston Red Sox participating in that event. And that will be uh, closer Kenley Jansen. Kenley, uh, earlier this year, uh, went over the 400 save mark, which uh, a very few have done that in Major League Baseball. So Kenley Jansen will represent the Red Sox and uh, in all probability uh, get an opportunity to, uh, to pitch uh, in that ball game. Uh, maybe, maybe just get one or two outs perhaps, but I think he will make an appearance uh, for the American League in that one. It'll be his first appearance as an American Leaguer as he has uh, pitched a number of times for the National League. Uh, following a year of historically high energy prices, many New Hampshire ratepayers are likely to see a significant reduction in their electric bills beginning on August 1st. If approved by the state's Public Utilities Commission, Eversource's default electric service rate would be 12.6 cents per kilowatt hour, down from the current 20.2 cents per kilowatt hour. The utility uh, covers parts of Claremont, Cornish, Croydon, Grantham, New London, Newport, Plainfield, Springfield, and Sunapee. Uh, Liberty's rate would also be uh, be a 12.6% down from 22% uh, per kilowatt hour. Uh, until uh, uh, Unitil, uh, which covers much of central New Hampshire, including the Concord region, is proposing a default rate of 13.25 cents per kilowatt hour, down from its current rate of 25.9 cents per kilowatt hour. The member-owned New Hampshire Electric Co-op electricity rate will be 11.42 cents per kilowatt hour as approved by its board of directors. 
The Community Power Coalition of New Hampshire, or the CPCNH, has made good on its assertion that it will procure its members the cheapest rates coming in with the lowest price, 10.9 cents per kilowatt hour, down from its starting default rate announced in March of 15.8 cents per kilowatt hour. So, electricity rates could start falling as soon as August 1st. And I'm sure that is uh, welcome news to, uh, to everyone. And uh, those electric bills have been going up and up, and I'm sure with the uh, very warm weather that we've had in uh, recent weeks, that uh, the, the air conditioners have been going full blast at many places, and uh, happy to see a reduction in the rates coming, and that could happen as soon as August 1st. So we, we certainly look forward to that. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. You can learn more and find your plan at Delta Dental Covers Me. Com. We will be back right after these words. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, and we can, you can be found on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. We'll be right back. here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. And it is time for our monthly segment with the New Hampshire Insurance Department. And joining us today is Dr. Jason Aziz, the Director of Health Economics, Life and, and Health at the New Hampshire Insurance Department. And Dr. Aziz, uh, great to have you with us this morning. Thank you, Ken. It's an honor to be here. Well, it is uh, our pleasure to have you with us. And our topic today is price transparency, uh, transparency in healthcare, and uh, how are healthcare services uh, different uh, compared to other services that uh, consumers are paying for? Great question. Um, as a consumer, we're all consumers. You know, we're aware of prices. When you buy a gallon of milk or a pair of pants, you know what price you pay. But different is healthcare. You're really unaware of the price that you pay, and your choice to go to any given healthcare provider is usually out of your control. It often comes from a referral from a doctor, or um, based on limited amount of providers out there in your area. So, uh, you know, we're talking about price transparency. So, define that for us. Well, price transparency is the awareness of prices or lack thereof across a continuum of healthcare markets. And uh, it's, it's being very transparent about the prices that are being charged. And, uh, you know, mo most people, as you well know, uh, don't read the fine print of, of anything. 
So sometimes they're uh, taken by surprise by some of the things that are that are in there. But uh, but we're talking about transparency here, and uh, so people know what they're getting into. Indeed, Ken. I mean, most people find out about the price of their health care service usually when they get some bill that they never intended to get. Yeah. And that's when they call our department with a complaint. Yeah. And uh, what does a, a price-sensitive consumer look like, and, and how do they uh, behave compared to uh, other consumers? Well, one of the main issues in our health care in this United States market is that consumers are largely price insensitive, meaning higher prices don't necessarily affect individuals' demand for any given healthcare service, right? So price-sensitive consumers are consumers who are aware of price variation among producers and change their purchasing behaviors to seek out lower cost and or higher quality alternatives. So uh, basically the bottom line is uh, it's, it's best to shop around. That's because, right, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's important to note that not all healthcare services are what we call shoppable. For example, emergency services, mm-hmm. say if you're having a heart attack or you're having a, some bleeding, um, you need to go to the closest healthcare provider. But there are lots of other services that we demand, like imaging services and other screening services, for which we have the time to get price information before we access those services. And we call those shoppable services. In fact, the federal government. Um, has created a list. It started at 70 shoppable services. It grew to 300. And by uh, the end of the summer, it's going to be a list of 500 shoppable services for which consumers can get information prior to accessing the service on what this might cost across all of the providers in the area. Well, that that is uh, good to know. And uh, so uh, a list of 500 services that are shoppable, you know what you're going to be in for before you get into it. Uh, things like uh, maybe biopsies, that sort of thing, colonoscopies, would that be uh, part of it? Uh, well, yeah, colonoscopies are one of the best examples yeah. to help people understand about this price um, transparency. But also other services, yes, biopsies, Lots of other radiological diagnostic services, Mm. MRIs, CAT scans, um, lab services, pathology services. These services collectively represent a great amount of the healthcare costs in our system. And if we can get our consumers to understand that there are lower cost providers out there and they have the, the autonomy to go and shop for them and we can give them tools to help find out who they are and where they are and what the cost differences are, then our system, our healthcare system as a whole can function more optimally. And that's the number one part of our healthcare system as it stands today that um, is in most need of reform. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, talk about price-sensitive producers. Yeah, I mean, it's tempting to just stay focused on the consumers, becoming more aware of prices and, and, and lower-cost substitutes out there. But there's a large opportunity for healthcare reform on the producer side of the market. Let's face it, no producer, doctor, or hospital hospital system wants to be known as the highest price provider in the market. So once they become aware that a greater proportion of the public becomes price aware, they know their prices, they start to that starts to exert a downward pressure on prices overall. And that's a key feature. Uh, yeah, no, no doubt about that. So uh, you should know what you're getting into be- before you 
have a, a procedure like a colonoscopy, like a, a biopsy, an MRI, uh, what, whatever it might be. What, what, what's the best way, really, for, for people to uh, shop for those uh, services? So New Hampshire was really an innovator in price transparency. And back in 2008, um, we developed a website called New Hampshire Health Cost. And it's still one of the most visited websites among all states for price transparency. We have about 270 healthcare services listed there and producers and providers all across the state listed. So you can go there and enter what service you're looking for, who's your insurance, including no insurance, so the uninsured rates, and um, even enter provider information and find out across the state where that service is offered and also see the prices so you can get a sense for who are the higher priced providers and who are the lower cost providers and if it's amenable and cost effective for the consumer then you can seek those out and you know that represents consumer choice which is really a factor that's lacking in our current system yeah uh, but uh, you do see the transparency when you go online and again that that website is what New Hampshire Health Cost. New Hampshire Health Cost. Simple as that. Simple as that. Google and that. It comes right up with our first site you'll see, and you'll start to get a sense for what's out there in terms of price information. Importantly, New Hampshire Health Cost is unique compared to the federal government and a lot of other states' price transparency um, websites in that we use prices from last year's medical claims. So the price information that we use to upload and refresh these prices um twice a year, comes from what did this provider for this service charge last year? Mm-hmm. And that's really a precise approach. I call that an empirical approach based on observational data, real data, not, not self-reported from the provider. As it stands now, there are some federal laws requiring hospitals to post their price information mm-hmm. in consumer-friendly formats on their website. Um, and state regulators, as well as fed- federal regulators, are tasked with assessing the fidelity of those rates, meaning do those rates correspond to what they actually bill for those services? Well, in New Hampshire, our process and approach actually supersedes that in that we post the rates that are in last year's medical claims. It's really an innovative approach, and I'm proud to be a part of it. Yeah, I, I would guess so, because I guess uh, it's probably not true in, uh, everywhere you go. So that that is terrific that uh, New Hampshire uh, provides that service, and and thank you uh, for being a part of that. And I hope uh, more people uh, find out about that and uh, uh, through this program and uh, and otherwise as well. What what do you see as the future of uh, price transparency uh, in healthcare? Well, we've already talked about consumers becoming more aware of lower cost and higher quality alternatives, and producers lowering their prices. We also want to consider large employers. Most of our insured um, individuals in New Hampshire are insured through employer-sponsored plans, large Mm -hmm. employer plans. These employers have massive purchasing power, and if they can use price transparency resources to better inform their purchases, who the providers are in the network, what services they cover, and what insurance carriers they use to administer their plans, that can exert significant downward pressure on prices. Collectively, all three of those, the supply side, the demand side, and then the longer-term changes, those collectively can have massive health reform impacts. Very interesting and uh, uh, eye-opening to a lot of people, I think. 
Dr. Jason Aziz is with us, and he is the Director of Health Economics, Life and Health at the New Hampshire Insurance Department, and it is uh, wonderful to have him uh, with us today. And uh, I'm sure opening some eyes and ears, as it were, uh, with some of the information that you've already given. We have to take a quick break. It is Kale and Company right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Welcome back, Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. We have our monthly session with the New Hampshire Insurance Department, and if you have any questions regarding your insurance coverage, the New Hampshire Insurance Department's Consumer Services Division is here to help. You can contact them by emailing consumerservices at ins.nh.gov. Again, that's consumer services at ins.nh.gov or by calling 800 852 3416. And you can learn more at nh.gov slash insurance. We have Dr. Jason Aziz today. He is the uh, Director of health, health Economics, Life and Health at the New Hampshire Insurance Department. And we're talking about uh, medical price transparency today here on the program. Let's talk about the uh, uh, transparency when it comes to per, uh, prescription drug prices. Oh, thank you. It's so nice to be back. Yeah, Ken, prescription drugs are a real hot topic um, in healthcare, and there's a reason why. It's because they're becoming an increasing share of total health expenditures, not just here in New Hampshire, but nationwide. And there's a reason for that, too. And one of them is technology and innovation, really. Innovations in drugs and drug therapies and in cell targets have become, have started to displace a lot of other types of less effective therapies and interventions and starting to cure lots of diseases that previously, frankly, had no treatments. So it's very tempting to start to, you know, point the finger at pharmaceutical manufacturers or pharmacy benefit managers who are all really involved in managing drug benefits and, and therefore drug costs, but they also perform a crucial and important and increasingly efficient service for our healthcare system. And um, I think that's a, a, an important concept that gets understated, and I'm often pointing that out to people on both sides of debates surrounding prescription drugs. Yeah, no, no question about that, because uh, sometimes when you see uh, what is being charged for prescription drugs, I'm sure many people think it's a little on the outrageous side. But again, what you just described, the fact that uh, prescription drugs in many cases these days are now replacing some surgeries that uh, had been performed in the past. And you mentioned, you know, like uh, perhaps it, it could el eliminate uh, chemotherapy as well, something like that. Exactly. And, you know, I think this goes back to the the human genome in 1996, and I don't want to get too, go too far back in history. Um, we discovered the human genome, so we knew like, the exact gene code. And from there, an entire set of research lines were developed to start to identify what cells are, are involved in, the, in oncogenesis or the development of cancer. 
And once those targets were identified for various types of cancer, we now were able to, to derive protein-based inhibitory drugs that would inhibit the cancer growth. Instead of you know, using a lot of these cytotoxic or uh, devastating um, chemotherapies and radiation therapies and even surgery therapeutic approaches, we could now treat a lot of cancers with drugs instead of scalpels and radiation. And that saves a lot of lives. Yeah, I, I, I'm certain that it does. Uh, talk about the, the, the cost of uh, prescription drugs and the transparency there. Uh, you know, there are still a lot of people, uh, in, in, in particular senior citizens, who take buses to Canada to buy their prescription drugs. Why are the prescription drugs apparently a lot less in, in Canada than they are here in the United States? That's a fascinating and really complex question. Um, the number one reason why you'll see that people going to Canada and Mexico and get, getting their drugs elsewhere it has to do with the jurisdiction and authority of our patent laws for drugs, which are really kind of exquisitely designed, actually. The FDA gets much criticism and scrutiny over that process, but at the same time, I think that most you know, hardworking Americans are unaware of how the FDA drug-to-market process works in this country. We, we would be waiting a really, really long time for drugs to come and be that next cure if we relied on a federal government bureaucracy, say like the FDA, to fund and manage that. That was identified back in the 1960s, and at that point, Politicians and regulators started to identify the fact that it would be more cost-effective and overall more effective to relegate that research and development process to private industry who had the motivation to innovate because they could make a lot of money. And from there, an entire set of patent laws were created to help to manage that process. So in the U.S., our, our pharmaceutical manufacturers and the PBMs who distribute the drugs and pharmacies, they're, they're tightly coupled to these patent laws, whereas other countries like Canada and Mexico are not. And that's the number one reason, which, again, it's complex and I've really generalized it, but the number one reason why, you know, when Trump was in office, he had the insulin buyback program. We were buying insulin that we produced from Canada at pennies on the dollar. It was because they were not subject to the patent laws and all of the trade tariffs that were associated with that process. So it comes down to uh, a lot of it is uh, regulation in, in this country. That's right. And the system is really well regulated despite what you know a lot of people think. And it's really, I think it strikes this perfect balance between innovation and, and the financial motivation for pharmaceutical manufacturers to compete and innovate for that next life-saving drug and the, the impetus for federal state government to protect citizens and consumer interests by having an effective and robust set of laws, keeping that industry in check, if you will. So any chance that uh, prescription drug prices uh, will come down in the foreseeable future? Well, that's what price transparency is, is, is hopeful for, right? And so price transparency for prescription drugs is really the newest flavor of price transparency across healthcare. 
And um, currently, at our state level and the federal level, there is a lack of transparency. And now our legislature is working hard in New Hampshire to require drug manufacturers and pharmacy benefit managers to be more transparent with prices and also the contracts that they negotiate with drug manufacturers. There's a lot of opacity there, meaning there's a lot of hidden information that currently is hidden under the guise of trade secrets. And our people want to know more about where their money is going mm-hmm. and, sure. and how these these negotiations, which should really come in the form of reduced prices for consumers, how they actually benefit consumers. The, the, when the, the system of pharmacy benefit managers was put into place, it was designed to promote vertical integration so that, that we could use purchasing power to get lower prices. But we haven't seen that translate as well as we'd like to see that in terms of consumer benefit at the cash register. That's the next step in price transparency for drugs. So when you hear from uh, consumers about their their health costs, whether it be health care, prescription drugs, uh, what what kind of feedback uh, do you get from uh, the, the average consumer? Well, I think the average consumer is frustrated and they feel like or think that the system is broken. It's important to remember that we do have one of the greatest healthcare systems in the world. I think there's there are some reports and some data out there that suggest otherwise, but we have a free choice system and we have an innovative system, a lot of motivation for not just drug manufacturers, but also medical researchers and biomedical engineers to innovate to help deliver healthcare more effectively to people. But we do also at the same time have several large and important powerful opportunities for reform. And I think the one message I'd like to send before we end today is to to share the importance of choice and consumer responsibility. Each of us are consumers of healthcare and we all hold an important responsibility to be aware of what we're spending and where we're getting our healthcare. And, you know, I think I've heard my dad say this before, you know, oh, my doctor prescribed that drug and I'm going to get it. It doesn't cost me anything. Well, that's because his insurance pays for it. So he doesn't really see any direct cost right there, right then. But it does indeed cost my dad and all of us every um, something each and every time we make a healthcare decision. We just are insulated from the immediate effect of that by insurance carriers. So we want our consumers to be more price aware, more price sensitive, and understand that they have choice. Just because the doctor says you need to go here doesn't mean that you need to go there. You need to go to the place that's best for you, considering time and distance of travel, cost, comfort, and trust in the in the medical provider that you're you're placing um, important kind of function in your life on. Well, very good advice. And uh, again, a, uh, a great website to know about is nhhealthcost.nh.gov. Again, nhhealthcost.nh.gov. I, I'm curious, doctor, as is, uh, how you uh, landed at the New Hampshire in- Insurance Department. Uh, what what, are, what is your background? Ken, every day I wake up, I'm curious about that. That's a good <laughs> question. Yeah, my, my training um, 
was an exercise physiologist and worked for 20 years as a clinical exercise physiologist with um, cardiac disease patients and pulmonary patients. And then I became a nutrition epidemiologist working to understand better the diet disease relationship. And those are two factors, lack of exercise and nutritional factors, a major drivers of chronic disease in the United States. So that's my background. I kind of try to bring that here to state government to you know, with, with the underlying goal to bring the health of the population closer to the health of the healthcare system. I think there's a gap there that we should be looking at, and that's one of my career goals is to narrow that gap. Well, it's been a very uh, interesting uh, conversation today, uh, Dr. Aziz, and uh, we appreciate you being with us and uh, hope you will come back in the uh, not-too-distant future. I can't wait till next time. Uh, great to have you with us. Maybe next time we'll talk a little sports. Let's do that. All right. And again, if you have any questions regarding your insurance coverage, the New Hampshire Insurance Department's Consumer Services Division is there to help you. You can contact them by emailing consumerservices at ins.nh.gov or calling 800-852-3416. And you can learn more at nh.gov insurance. We thank you for listening today. We thank uh, Dr. Aziz for being in the studio today. Just a, a terrific guest. And we hope you can join us tomorrow for more of Kale & Company on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Have a great Tuesday, everyone. <laughs>